This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous discussion of difficult topics. Tonight is part of the ongoing series about trauma, and tonight we're going to be focusing on future directions in trauma research. My guest tonight is Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. Dr. van der Kolk is a clinician, researcher, and teacher in the area of post-traumatic stress. He's a professor of psychiatry. He's the medical director at the Trauma Center at HRI in Boston, past president of the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies, and has published so many things, he doesn't want to be bored by my recitation of them all. <laughs> but it is a true honor, Dr. van der Kolk, to have you on the show. I'm, I'm so delighted that you're my guest. Thank you. So I want to start by asking you, what have we learned from the brain to help us understand the nature of trauma and traumatic stress? Well, a lot, actually. Um, we have learned that the brain gets affected if you're a traumatized kid who is continuously being fearful because your brain develops in a use-dependent manner. So if your brain needs to, to survive abuse and neglect, you develop a brain that gets good in surviving abuse and neglect but has a hard time doing other things. And so it really affects, affects the whole wiring of the brain. Yes. And that has all kind of implications for the treatment of children and adults with chronic abuse and neglect history where the story about the trauma is not all that important or interesting, but an organism that is constantly focused on where the next danger is coming from or how to, how to survive without another human being becomes really important. So that's one big su subject. So what, you're, what I'm hearing you say is that in a way the story, which people can get so focused on, is less important than almost the biological primedness of the well, body. The story doesn't change anything. You can, it expl sort of explains why you feel the way you do. It helps you to rationalize why you feel so bad or whatever. But it doesn't change it. Mm -hmm. And what is changed is the way that your mind and brain perceives reality. And so it sounded like you had a list. What were some other things that uh, so we've learned from the, the brain? The next thing is that um, so one-time trauma has certain impacts on the brain in that it, it affects your emotional brain uh, again, a part of your brain that um, has nothing to do with meaning-making or, um, or language, but it sort of sits there and it causes your brain to jump from time to time in response to sounds and smells and images and physical sensations and make you feel as if you're being traumatized again. And again, that's a part of your brain that also doesn't particularly benefit from meaning-making other than oh, now I understand whenever somebody touches me, I freak out. Or now I understand when uh, that I don't feel any fear even though somebody is really messing with me because I've shut off my fear system. Or, oh, now I understand why I have such intense reactions to something or another that nobody else is upset by. Uh, but again, understanding that gives you some control over it, but doesn't really change it. Yeah, so uh, it's a feeling of, of validation, maybe, but it doesn't take you further exactly. than that. And the validation is terribly important. It is very terribly important, not so much for car accidents or having gone to Iraq, because everybody knows you went to Iraq and been in car accidents, but it's very important when you grow up in an environment of uncertainty where you're not allowed to know what you know and see what you see. Mm. And so that the imprints of that 
Bechor cannot be talked about. So having somebody with whom you can learn to talk about these events that were unspeakable can be very helpful. In fact, it's sort of probably indispensable. But knowing it doesn't reset these things. I said that's, that's the second piece we have learned. All right. Um, the third thing we have learned is that if your state, your brain in, is in a chronic state of hyperarousal or hypoarousal, it changes your executive functioning. It changes the way that you organize reality. It organizes what you see and what you don't see. It organizes what you can focus on and what you get distracted by. And so it affects the whole organization of your mental functioning. That's a powerful thing to say. Those are, those are the first three things that come to my mind. Yeah, so just to say, yeah. go over that again, because that feels really important. First thing is that the brain gets organized in a use-dependent manner. Yes. So if you grow up in an environment marked by neglect or chronic fear, you develop a mind and brain that learns to cope with chronic fear and chronic neglect. And that becomes your organization as a human being. Right. If that's the case, the greatest challenge is to develop an, an organism, as I like to call it, that actually can feel safe and calm. And that's a huge challenge for people with those backgrounds. Yes, and maybe what we could do as a way to kind of organize even how we talk about this is with each one of these three to think together about the clinical implications right. of that. So, yeah, so, so the three issues is, one, brain gets used in a use-dependent manner. Right. Even the first 10 years of your life, most of your development is geared around surviving abuse and neglect. You get a brain that can survive abuse and neglect, right. but has a hard time engaging in normal adult activities that give people pleasure, joy, and, and, and all the good stuff of life because your brain is geared to do something else. Yes, and so then if you say the challenge then for the person is to develop a way to feel I safe can and calm. I can barely understand you. Okay, let me speak yeah. better. Yeah. So if, if then the challenge for the person is to find ways to feel safe and calm, right. what are some of the ways that you help people do that? Well, you know, there are, everybody has to find their own way. Some people find it in religion. Some people find it in yoga, tai chi, massage, athletic activities, qigong, usually not methods that are particularly well cultivated in the Western tradition. Yes, I noticed that. There's a decided Eastern flavor to it, more meditative, mindfulness-based practices. Yeah, not, maybe not even meditative, because meditative, because if you become too still, the demons start coming out of your mind. Uh, so for most chronically traumatized people, meditation is actually extremely difficult and too challenging. Very uh, but, interesting. Um, uh, engaging in qigong, changing, uh, engaging in drumming, engaging in swimming, um, engaging in martial arts, mm -hmm. kickboxing, kendo drumming, um, I mean, things that you see when you travel around the world, except if you travel in Europe. Right. We could get into a whole cultural analysis about that, but we won't. No, it's a very important thing because basically us white people grow up in, a, in an alcoholic culture. Huh? Tradition is that if you feel bad, you take a swig of alcohol. Uh, and that alcoholic culture has evolved into a, a deeper drug culture. So if you feel bad, you take a drug. 
And so generally when people go to doctors and they are upset and freaked out and frightened, they say, let's just give you another drug to make that feeling go away. That's how Northern Europeans and their descendants in North America have always dealt, if you feel bad, you need to swallow something. Uh, Then when you travel to other parts of the world, what's interesting to see is that almost every culture except the Northern European one has developed a rhythmical and rhythmical interoceptive communal movements mm. that create a sense of um, safety and community between people. Feels very powerful to hear that, you know. Particularly, I, I'm a psychiatrist, as are you, and we are so often in the role of being the prescriber of another drug. Well, speak for yourself. <laughs> Point well made. No, I, I, I was actually the first chief resident of psychopharmacology at Harvard um, a few years ago, and so I've been a great devotee of better lives for chemistry, and explore that sort of to the hilt. Mm. And then you find out that a lot of people don't get better. And then your job is to find out, oh, if that doesn't work, let's see what else works. That's right. I'm going to move on now, Dr. Yeah. Vandercook, to the yeah. second point you made from brain studies, um, that knowing what happened to you, developing a coherent narrative for you, the trauma, is very important in terms of validation, but not in changing anything. And Well... Except for, I think you told me that you learned IFS. I did, Internal Family Systems, that's right. At at this point, the only study that I know of that's really quite worthy of our attention is that Dick Schwartz and his colleagues did a study at at Harvard, at the Brigham, of patients with chronic rheumatoid arthritis. And they dealt with their different parts and their helpless parts and their giving up parts. And they found and compared that treatment with conventional rheumatoid arthritis methods and found that this very deep going into yourself and befriending different parts of yourself had a better effect on chronic rheumatoid arthritis than conventional medications. To my knowledge, it's the first time that somebody did a study that shows that doing very deep psychological work can actually change the immune system. Yes, change the body. And how does that translate to trauma for you? Well, that's, that is about trauma work. Um, but but so there's not that much evidence right now that knowing and understanding changes these core systems in the brain that get geared towards fear and fleeing, fighting, and violence up to at this point. Second thing is that the brain changes so that certain sounds, images, and smells open up pathways in the brain to make the brain act, behave, and secrete hormones and electrical signals as if you're back there again. As if the whole brain gets hijacked by sounds and smells to go into the same biological state as you were at the moment of, of trauma. And then you need to find a, a treatment that causes the brain to stop being hijacked by that. Again, there may be many different ways of doing that, but the only treatment that I know of, and I happen to have done that study, um, where people can change those reactions, is EMDR. Mm. I'm open desensitization and reprocessing. Mm. doesn't mean that's the only thing that can do it, but we happen to have done a study where we showed that this could happen. 
Which is very hopeful. Huh? Yes. So, so, but this hijacking by the brain is very important. And what we have learned about brain science is that we need to, to neutralize or integrate the circuits, the trauma circuits in the brain. And when you say that neutralize or integrate the trauma circuits, what we does that mean? We need to, um, right now you have these sort of dissociated ways in which the brain suddenly starts having these circuits that get your brain back into the same circuits that you were at the time of the trauma. Yes. And so we need to do something to open up the cir- those circuits to get them integrated with the other circuits of the brain. Yeah, so they're not in a continuous sort of loop where they can't, you can't exit. Right, so they're not in, in an independent loop yes. from the rest. Yes, and so EMDR, which is a, you know this bilateral brain hemisphere stimulation, yeah. seems to be something that can disrupt that loop. Yeah, it's certainly one way in which you can do it, in a very powerful way according to our research. I don't think it's the only way of doing it. I suspect that, let's say, martial arts might be able to do it if you're able to do something where you're able to take action to a stimulus where you couldn't take action before, that might change it. So you're re-engaging the person's act of defense, is that way? Yeah, I think, I think the creating new action patterns around previous patterns of helplessness would be, very, yes. would be one way of doing it. Um, so, so that's the second area. Um, the third area is that if the if the brain stays in this sort of use-dependent hyperarousal pattern, we see this very, very well in recent research done on returning Iraqi and uh, Afghani veterans, but we saw it before in other sort of studies in all kinds of traumatized populations, that people become very good in dealing with threat and dealing with um, picking up what's dangerous. But they are very bad in dealing with play and nurturing and enjoying yourself. You see this very beautifully in the last scene of the movie that won all the Oscars last year, The Hurt Locker. Uh, um, These guys, as long as in the war, they're doing great and very competent, and you all would like to hire them to protect you and take care of business. And the moment they come home, they can't play with their kid. They can't engage in uh, intimate relationships with their wives. They can't do anything else because their brain is set to deal with hyperarousal. And by hyperarousal, you're really talking about the sort of fight or flight, very on, very focused well, it's state. Well, it's not fight or flight. It's really it's just that the brain gets geared to deal with sitting in a car looking out for somebody who's going to kill you. And to be very alert and very good at it. Uh, so that also when you come home, you also are probably very good driving a Harley-Davidson 100 miles an hour. <laughs> right. Uh, and you're probably very good in becoming a policeman who patrols the streets in the most dangerous areas of the city. And the brain gets very good at that. But the brain becomes lousy for anything else. High risk, high, high enrichment. But that's not the same thing as fight and flight. You just get a rewired brain that becomes very good so, in hyper-focusing. So at the end of the hurt locker, as I recall, the guy decides to go back to the war. Exactly. Yeah, so alternatives to that, if, you've been, if your brain has been wired in this way... Right. Would the, would the treatment for that be similar? You rewire the brain. Right, that sounds so easy, the way you say yeah. that. Neurofeedback. Neurofeedback. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, neurofeedback, you, um, uh, the way you practice neurofeedback is you uh, take the, you project, you put electrodes on people's skull, you 
project it on a computer screen, and then you tell the brain to make more of one sort of waves and a few less than the other, and you have people play computer games that helps the brain to develop a different attentional system. So it's like biofeedback, only it's specifically for brain waves. Well, biofeedback just does heart rate. Yes, but this so is for brain waves. Infinitely more simple than dealing with the three trillion neurons in the brain. <laughs> how hard is it for someone to learn how to do that? Um, well, we're doing it. We have a nice neurofeedback lab in the trauma center, and we're doing it in five different residential treatment settings, and uh, oh. we know many people around the country who do it. Uh, how wonderful. So it, it, you know, it takes a lot of training to learn how to do it. I can't think of anything else that can do it. If the brain is wired to do one thing, you have to rewire it to do something else. In what better way? I imagine it's it's pretty empowering for the person to learn to feel like they have some control over well, their own brain. Empowering. People's brain gets rewired so they can do stuff. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it's like, like you know, you know, before you cannot do something, and then you can do something. And then you can. That's but, right. But, uh, this is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space, and I'm talking to Dr. Bessel van der Kolk about the current state-of-the-art research in trauma, traumatic stress. I want to shift now to an, another subject, which is about repetition. You've written about how perhaps particularly people that ha- suffered trauma in childhood go on to reenact and repeat some of the same traumas, and yeah. I'd love to know how you understand that phenomenon. Well, I, I think that's somewhat similar to... Um what we just talked about. And that if you your brain gets wired to feel engaged about a certain thing and not about other things, that engagement doesn't necessarily need to, need to be pleasurable. Uh, but you feel alive because when you're anxious, it may make you feel alive. Well, if you don't, don't feel like it, it does make you feel alive. So quite a long time, somebody came up with the notion at the long-range what starts off with pain can become pleasurable, and what starts off with pleasurable can become painful. And so, at some point, if you get, if your brain reward system gets attached to certain things that are also scary and also destructive, you compulsively re-engage in that destructive behavior because your your reward system of your brain has been reset to take pleasure in that. So what you're saying is that the person feels drawn to something like that because it makes them feel pleasure and more alive. Yeah, and, and the word pleasure is, is too nice a word. Let's say, again, the last guy in the, in the hurt locker, he feels nothing coming back home. When he goes to back to Baghdad or Afghanistan, he doesn't necessarily feel pleasure, but he feels alive. A woman who has been chronically abused as a child may go out with a very nice, thoughtful guy, and no, hate is a really nice, thoughtful guy, but he doesn't do anything for me, and the guy becomes violent and crazy, and she feels at home and says, yeah, now I feel alive because this is what I'm familiar with. It's very painful, isn't it? Well, it's part of us as humanity. That's what, what happens to us. And how and what have you learned is helpful for, for people who who are aware that they're doing this and want to stop? Well, again, I, I, I'm looking for neuro, to neurofeedback to do. How much of a role does conscious choice have? I mean, if someone becomes really aware... Oh, I, 
I think people have very little conscious choice over that. <laughs> that's very humbling. You know, that's how. It's funny, you know, with all this cognitive, cognitive behavioral stuff. People say, "Well, let's compare your irrational belief with reality." Right. And I think that's just the craziest thing. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy because you think that we underestimate the power of the brain. Well, I certainly don't. Who says that? Compare uh-huh. your irrational belief with how it really is. I. I doubt whether any human being has ever done that. Huh, it's just not the way we are wired. Uh, we have a very large emotional brain that has no reason, uh, as overlaid with a very small rational brain, and rational brain doesn't have a hell of a lot to say over that emotional brain. I couldn't agree with you more. We love who we love, we hate who we hate, and other people may say, how can you love that person? You say, well, I don't know, but I just do. You know, and that's the way it is. And you say, well... Look at this, and look at that. You say, yeah, I know, I know, it's it's pretty awful, but, you know. There it is. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not, I want to change subjects again, because I know our time is limited. And yeah. that's to ask you, I know you're doing work at the Trauma Center and your own research about different... The Trauma Center research, yeah. Yes, okay, about um, different diagnostic categories. And I wondered if you could say a little bit about this, the idea of developmental uh-huh. trauma. Yeah, um, well, the issue there is that you know, historically, you know, I started this work in about 1978, and I was working in the VA, and they didn't have a diagnosis for veterans. And so at that time, a whole bunch of people got together and knocked on the door of the American Psychiatric Association, the VA, and said, you know, no, it's not these guys' mothers, or it's not their genes. These guys got really, really, really upset and freaked out by the war, and it's caused by the war. And that political movement eventually ended up in the APA establishing PTSD. And then a very strange thing happened. Now we had the trauma diagnosis, and then people thought that this trauma diagnosis is for everybody. Uh, but uh, that's a very dumb notion, actually, because it's never been studied for a large swaths of population. And people who get, so for DSM-4, I was in charge of the field trial for PTSD, and we found is that when people are abused by their intimate partners as adults, or when people are abused by their own parents as children, they develop very different symptoms, a very different conglomeration of, of issues. And since that time, we have learned a lot about how trauma affects uh, brain development and how trauma affects cognitive development. And none of these findings actually have ever made it into a diagnostic system. And what we now deal with is that, as you may know, about 3 million children a year get reported for abuse and neglect in the United States. And so we're dealing with a population that's about 10 times as large as our veteran population. Um, and for, it's terrific that everybody's paying, paying attention to veterans, but in the meantime, we have 10 times as large a population of kids who are um, living in the war zone and who are abused and neglected. And they have no diagnosis. And so right now, because these kids are oftentimes out of control, they're called bipolar. And when they're called bipolar, they're being given antipsychotic medications. And last year, in the U.S., people spent $16.9 billion on antipsychotic medications for children. And what you buy for that is that children become less of a total pain in the neck um, and they also stop learning and being motivated because the same drugs that cause these kids to be calm takes away their curiosity and takes the capacity to learn away. Mm. So we're dealing really with a gigantic 
disaster of hundreds of thousands of children who are being over-medicated, who are called bipolar, or as they're called PTSD, they're getting some trauma treatment. But what's wrong with these kids is not a dog bite or a particular thing, but a whole pervasive uh, fear system and attentional system that has been damaged by ongoing trauma. And so when when these kids grow up and you're looking at the comparison, say, between a child who's had that kind of um, formative experience versus an adult, maybe a veteran, how does it look different when you say they really have a conglomeration well, of different symptoms? You de- you're dealing with an, a brain that has not been formed. And, and the brain gets formed in a use-dependent manner. So what happens to your brain tells your brain what you should do with it. And so if you have a mature brain, you don't learn a hell of of experience because your brain is pretty stable. But when you're a little kid, uh, your brain growth gets very profoundly affected by whatever happens to you. And so if you're um, a child who is abused and in danger all the time, you change, you lose your capacity for affect regulation. Mm-hmm. So you cannot calm yourself down, you get out of control, you get too angry, you can't sleep, you can't eat, you can't take care of your body. How the most elementary ways of taking care of your body gets affected by that. So the whole, and then you start rocking or taking drugs or you masturbate chronically as a way of trying to deal with your terribly dis- disregulated body. Yes, to try to calm yourself down. Dr. Vanderkoek, yeah. we are going to have to stop in a minute, and I want to ask you one last thing, yeah. even though what you're saying is so important, which is I know that people are going to want to read more about this. We've said so many interesting things. Is there a website or a particular book or you know source that you would direct people to who want to learn more? Yeah, the Trauma Center website has a lot of information about all of this. Yes, there's a whole articles and publications section where you can read the, read the text online. Right. Which is a wonderful so, resource. So org. Great. There's actually information about all the stuff that I'm talking about. Development of trauma disorder, neurofeedback, EMDR, uh, various other trauma treatments, working with traumatized kids, all this stuff. It's wonderful. Thank you so much for being my guest, Dr. Renderkirk. Okay. It's truly been a pleasure. Good luck to you. It's very, thank you for your show. Very important contribution. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. This is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space. My guest has been Dr. Bessel Vanderkoek talking about the current state-of-the-art in research on trauma and post-traumatic stress. If you'd like to listen to this show again in its entirety or send it to a friend or download a podcast of it, please go to the website, which is at www.safespaceradio.com. My thanks tonight to Jen Hodgson for mixing the sound, Maurice Lennon for doing the music, and Neil McKenty for being my consultant. Coming up next is Money Talks with Allison.